Today's whole show came out of this thing that we heard the politician said, and we wondered, is that true? Like, was he right? And the answer set us on this eight-month journey where at some point, like the best journeys, I think, we forgot what the original reason was that we set out. And we just started to learn all kinds of things that we had never imagined back at the beginning. Where we ended up was Albertville, Alabama, a mountain town in the northern part of the state, a town that went through a huge change in population very quickly. Back in 1990, Albertville was 98% white. Then it got a flood of outsiders, mostly from Mexico, documented and undocumented immigrants. So many people that after just 20 years, the all-white town was more than a fourth Latino. Basically, Albertville was around 15,000 people and got another 6,000. Most of them came to work in the poultry processing plants in town. And one nice thing about Albertville, if you want to understand what really happened there during the town's big change, it's small enough you can just show up. Like, everybody's still kind of right there. Like, if you walk into one of the poultry plants and ask, who was the first Latino worker to show up here? They actually know. One of my co-workers, Nikki Meek, did just that. Do you remember who one of the first immigrants was to work at the plant? Uh, Gregorio or something like that. Uh, Gregoria, Gregoria something. I don't know his last name. They call him Ravioli. <laughs> they call him Ravioli? Why Ravioli? I don't know, because his hard name's hard to pronounce, I guess. <laughs> and uh, he couldn't speak any English. Kind of shy, you know, and his name was Gregoriola. And he's still at the plant. We did locate this mythical Latino chicken plant Neil Armstrong, Gregorio. And he is kind of shy. Wouldn't make eye contact, mumbled. And after we made three visits to his house, he finally got rid of us by fobbing us off on his uncle. Gregorio. I mean, he not talk to nobody, you know. Too quiet. <laughs> He's too quiet? Yeah. His uncle, Fernando Martinez, is the opposite of shy. Extroverted, super friendly, an amateur guitarist and singer with a gigantic mustache and shaggy hair that make him look like the 1970s country rock star Freddie Fender. Fernando and Gregorio came to the chicken plants in Albertville right when this all began, sometime around 1991. Neither can remember exactly. And one of the people Fernando met was Pat. Now in her 60s and eligible for retirement. She's still working, still tough, always on the move. That's what I like about it. I go to work, I clock in at 15 to 4 every morning. I'm moving, I'm moving. She's been at her plant for 44 years and has held just about every job there. Pulled out guts and lungs, ran the box machine, sawed chickens into nine-piece meals for KFC. She befriended Fernando and Gregorio. Before Greg, had you ever met a Latino before? No. He, he was really my first. Mm-hmm. I kind of, I wasn't too sure. Basically, Fernando just sat down at Pat's lunch table one day, and they started talking tentatively. Here's Fernando uh, speaking through an interpreter. It's easier for him than being interviewed in English. Then from then on, I sat with her every day. What would you guys talk about? Like, how did you communicate? You're never really talking about work. Uh, you know, they would ask me if I had a girlfriend or a wife. Hey, Fernando, you got any kids? And I said, who knows? And then we started laughing together. <laughs> Within a few years at this plant, things would get pretty tense and suspicious between the Mexican workers and the local workers. And things would get pretty ugly in town, too. But back then, at the very beginning, the newcomers were a novelty. Not a threat. wasn't hard to get along. And we were just sitting there one day, and uh, we were talking, and he said, Patricia. I said, what? I said, what did you call me? He said, that's your name in Spanish. 
my name is Patricia. Mm-hmm. But he said, Patricia. Uh-huh. And I thought, God, that sounds so pretty. I've never liked my name. But ever since he said it, I've liked my name. Oh, really? Yeah. As, as cornball, I know. But he said, Patricia. I and thought that was beautiful. Yeah, and I, it did. It sounded so beautiful. Patricia. Patricia. Okay. So we went to Albertville because of something that a politician said. And the politician was Jeff Sessions, longtime Alabama senator, currently President Trump's attorney general. It's Sessions' views on immigration that have become administration policy. The administration has proposed cutting the number of immigrants who come into this country each year in half. And it especially targets the kind of workers who arrived in Albertville, low-wage, unskilled workers who don't speak English. It's something Sessions has been pushing for for over a decade. And it's not a coincidence that those are the workers most targeted. A longtime ally of his in Washington on the immigration issue, Roy Beck, the founder of a group called Numbers USA, who's known Sessions since the 90s, says, I really uh, doubt that he would have made immigration his signature issue if not for his experience with the poultry plants in Alabama. We wanted to see what Sessions saw. And we went looking for a poultry town that got a ton of immigrants. And in Alabama, the poster town for that is Albertville. Jeff Sessions has visited Albertville. He's spoken there, met with the mayor and residents about the immigrants who arrived. And whatever it is that Sessions saw in those Alabama chicken plants, it sent him down the road to some very strong positions. He declined our request for an interview, but here he is on the floor of the Senate in 2007. Big, greedy businesses who hire illegal workers in hiring those numbers by the tens or hundreds of thousands we pull down the wages of American citizens. Why would we do that? Why don't we take care of our American workers? This is him in 2014. I talked to uh, a business person recently about a factory that they have. The work sounded pretty good to me. Uh, And uh, he wants to bring in foreign workers to Alabama. Well, we've got unemployment in Alabama. We've got people on unemployment insurance. We've got people on welfare and food stamps and assistance that need to be taking those jobs. The former state senator, Scott Beeson, who helped write Alabama's landmark 2011 self-deportation bill, once said, quote, If you don't believe illegal immigration will destroy a community, go and check out parts of Alabama around Albertville. So was Albertville destroyed? Are Beeson and Jeff Sessions right? To figure out the answer, we've interviewed more than 100 people. Workers and managers of the poultry plants, politicians, law enforcement, documented and undocumented immigrants, kids of immigrants who grew up in town, older white residents who hated the changes. We also had an economist look at what happened to wages and to jobs, and another economist estimate what it cost the town to pay for schools and public services for the newcomers. There's an issue where one side says that immigrants are an awful threat, stealing jobs, committing crimes, costing taxpayers. And the other side says that they're the exact opposite. The very source of our strength as a country, boosting the economy, adding diversity. And here at our show, we thought for once, rather than hash over those familiar arguments, let's just go to a place where immigration has happened and talk in a factual way about what the hell actually occurs when lots of low-wage, low-skill workers arrive from another country. Like, what's that actually do to everyone's lives? What we learned from WBEZ Chicago... It's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Stay with us.
Today's show, we're going to talk about the effect that the newcomers had on jobs. So all the action is going to be inside the chicken plants. Next, week, we're going to take up what happened in town. Politics, schools, taxes, crime, all that. My co-host for both shows is going to be my co-worker, Miki Meek. She and I have been traveling down to Alberville with our colleague, Lily Sullivan, many trips over the last eight months. Miki's the one who spent a lot of time talking to poultry workers. And Miki, the changes were a shock to longtime workers, right? So, yeah, because the chicken plants were pretty much built for them. This happened right after World War II, when the state of Alabama realized it needed a new economic strategy. Cotton and corn weren't bringing in much for small farmers anymore. They wanted to keep people in jobs. So they decided they'd get the state into poultry production. They wanted to stick a plant up north to kill and process chickens, and they let different towns compete for it. Albertville won and built the first plant near the middle of town, right next door to the high school. Many more plants joined later, and now poultry companies are the biggest employers in town. Poultry is also the biggest agribusiness in Alabama, almost 10% of the state's economy. A billion chickens every year. Pat, who you heard earlier, she and her father were exactly the workers who these plants were built for. Growing up, she worked in the cotton fields with her dad. Then he got a job in a plant, and she followed him in soon after. She started as a giblet wrapper. 1973, August the 13th. How do you still remember the day? <laughs> it's just easy. <laughs> it's just... August the 13th, 1973. And you got to remember, this was the early years. Okay, so what does it that was, mean? The early years, it was like, it was a kind of unit. Same 18 ladies on that wrapping table. Older, hardworking people that come out of the fields. It was family. It was family. Everybody knew. The chicken plant was good pay, benefits, retirement. A decent job if you didn't finish high school. And that's mostly who took the jobs. Pat dropped out after ninth grade, got married, and had two kids. She took a job at the plant because... I wanted to buy a house. Okay. And we penny-pinched, penny-pinched till we had our damn payment. And so you got your house. And we got this house. And it's, it's this house right it's here. same house that we live in right now. One unusual thing about these poultry plants, by the late 1980s, there were long-term workers at the plants for sure. But turnover was so high in the plants, it's like you could always show up and just expect to get a job. You fall on tough times, need to pick up money for a family emergency. You knew the plant was there. The plants were like a public utility in that way. The head of HR at one of the plants, Tom Howell, said that when he started at Wayne Farms back in 1990, this is before tons of Mexican workers showed up, it was common to hire the same person five or six times in the same year. They'd use the mirror test. And the mirror test is what? I'm surprised you don't know what the mirror test is. That's pretty simple. You just stick it under a person's nose, and if they fog that mirror up, you know they're breathing, so you put them to work. <laughs> People joke that you could quit one plant in the morning and get hired by another plant in the afternoon. And the first real change to that came in the mid-1990s. By then, there was a rapid and steady stream of Mexican workers arriving, hundreds of them, mostly men, mostly here without their families. One of Pat's good friends is an especially helpful witness to what happened in their plant. This is a woman everybody calls Miss Martha. Wavy brown and gray hair and glasses. She's been there since the 70s and works at the supply window, which means she talks to just about everyone. They all have to go to her window to pick up gloves and aprons. Oh, it's a, it's the little gossip window, I guess. People just want to come up and talk, and I'm a good listener, so I listen to them, you know. She says she likes to play 20 questions at the window. I made her tell me some of the questions. How many kids you got? How far do you work from here? 
Your family live with you? You know, little simple questions that you lead up. And then when you know him a little bit better, what can you move on to? Got a girlfriend? Married? How much money you got in the bank? <laughs> and most of the time they'll tell me what they're done. She says when the Latino workers showed up, they and the local workers were kind of just thrown together in this fast-paced industrial workplace and had to improvise without being able to speak the same language. And it could be kind of nerve-wracking. Martha would train people on the saw line. And uh, I feel kind of dangerous to be, like, training somebody on how to use a saw when, when you can't really... Yeah, train somebody, yes, it was dangerous. That's when they only had certain people to train them, you know. They had patience with them, you know. I show him right here, get the bird up, and I say... You pat it? Into the saw, into the saw. But while they were working side by side, there was this feeling of, like, where did these people come from? Why were they here all of a sudden? And so many of them. It's, it's kind of like... Um, an uneasy feeling, you're unsure, you don't know whether to trust them or whether not to trust them. Uh, and we didn't know whether they were legal or they weren't legal or what. But there was a lot of them you know there's not. I mean, you, you, can, just, you can just tell by the way they act. How's that? They have a, a guard, a guard up on them. Like they don't want to get too like close. They to don't want to get too close. They don't want to make conversation about certain things. And you have one that says, I'm legal, I'm legal, I'm legal. And she gets fired three times because of bad paperwork. So, I mean, how much did you, would you ask? Was there a period where, like, you guys, you were, like, asking about it and then you just... Some of them would act like you did. They didn't want you... They don't know, no caprende, you know. That is when they don't want to tell you nothing. There were a lot of things that just look really sketchy. People would get fired and come back to work. And when they came back, they had a different name. Pat remembers watching one woman fill out a form they had if you wanted to get your birthday off. The woman was young, maybe early 30s. And the birthday she put down had her 66 years old. And we have girls, over the years, they have their 15 coming out parties. That's Martha again. And she's talking about quinceañeras, which you celebrate when you turn 15. They was giving out invitations. They were handing them out at work. Mm-hmm. Well, they did until they, one of them got in trouble and they fought her. But, yeah, she was so proud of it, so she started giving out invitations. And then that's how they found out she was lying about her age. How did you feel about that? Well, I didn't like it. You know, I, really, I, I didn't like it the way they was sneaking in over here. And, and the company knows it. It seemed like the Mexicans were getting away with something. They were cheating the system. They were not here legally, and the company was helping them do it. Maybe the Mexicans weren't paying the same taxes, Lots of workers believe that, though it wasn't true. The companies were required to take them out automatically. Regardless, longtime workers started to believe the same thing that Jeff Sessions came to believe, that these new immigrants were taking jobs that didn't belong to them. A quiet resentment set in among the white workers at the plants. Everyone says you'd walk in and you could feel it. We'll hear the company's side of all this in the second half of the show. They have a totally different story to tell. But the icing on the cake for the workers was that the company seemed to like what was happening. In fact, maybe they were even behind it. There's this thing I heard over and over from almost every local I talked to. Again, here's Pat and Martha. I don't know whether it's true or not, but we were told that there was a sign put up at the border, work in Albertville, Alabama, poultry. I have an 800 number that you could call. And it's on the border where? Uh, right as you go into Texas. Do you think that's true or do you think that's fake? Yes, it was true. Are you positive it was true? Yes, I, yes, yes. Where did you see it? You saw a picture? I've seen a picture of it. I never could find a picture of it. 
Some locals said it was more than one billboard. Some said it was in Texas. One woman said she saw it in Tijuana. But always the sign named exactly one town in the whole country. Albertville, Alabama. Did that make you feel betrayed by the company? Yes, it did. Yes, it did. Because because I put years in here, and I, put, I, I have drawed chickens, hung chickens, dumped chickens, pushed dead chickens, saw, shoveled eyes, stacked boxes, cleaned chicken, poop off of coops and everything. Yeah, that is my plant. Still to this day, that is my plant. Who did you feel mad at? Like, were you, did you feel mad at the Latinos? Were you mad at the company, or was it... No, I wasn't mad at the Latinos. I was mad at management. They were skeeving, skiving, taking shortcuts to get a man. I'm mad. I'm mad. I'm mad at... I'm, I'm not mad. I'm upset. I'm hurt, really. So was there a sign at the border? I talked to a bunch of the men who came to Albertville in that first wave of Mexican workers about whether that's what brought them to town. Have you heard that? <laughs> no, no, no. No sabría. I didn't know that. Have you heard about this? No. Pero no creo que sea cierto. I don't think it's true. Chist- chistoso. Yeah, it's funny. Have you heard about this sign? Yo no sé eso. <laughs> so you're laughing. What makes you laugh about that? Because, you know, they're saying that Wayne Farms is putting these, like, yeah, they're putting these signs up at the, at the border. Why at the border? <laughs> so that Mexicans can see them and come get a job. <laughs> they literally never heard of this. They worked side by side with the local workers for 20 years and had no idea that this was the story going around about them. This is a story that every local we talked to had heard of. So no, they were not in the U.S. because of a sign at the border. In fact, what the American workers didn't know about these guys is that lots of these men who arrived in the early 90s had been in this country for years. They were not newly arrived immigrants stealing American jobs. They'd been here, working, and got amnesty when Ronald Reagan signed his big immigration reform in 1986. It legalized almost three million people. Some were seasonal workers in the tomato fields close to Albertville. Some were on farms in Oregon, California, Florida, Michigan. Some did construction work. They made their way to town, and the chicken plant seemed like a good deal. This was work that would happen regardless of rain or snow. No off months. A reliable paycheck. And even better, they could finally stay in one place. Which meant they could also finally bring their families from Mexico. This worker we'll call Carlos is pretty typical of that first wave. He'd been in the U.S. since the 70s, got amnesty under Reagan, had five kids and a wife in Guanajuato that he only got to see once a year. He says he tried to stay connected to them by sometimes putting on his best clothes and going out with a camera. I would send them pictures. I would send them pictures of, like, standing next to a car or a big house, so maybe they would think that I lived there. But that wasn't your car or house? No, 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 no. You start missing the love of your child, especially when you're gone for a year and you miss them growing up. He was the foreman of an apple orchard in Michigan. A good job. But in Albertville, his wife could work with him at the chicken plant. Double their income. They could send their kids to a much better school than back home. And so after the first wave of men moved to town, word spread about these jobs. And the population started to shift. From people who were in the country legally to lots of workers and family members who were not, who moved here directly from Mexico 
arriving into town in packed cars and vans. Carlos says he brought his family legally, but also told lots of people back home. So you, you start, like, spreading the word. You know, I'll tell, like, maybe two, three other um, Mexicans. I'll say, hey, you know, you should come here because there is lots and lots of work. They needed the work because Mexico was in economic crisis. The currency crashed in 1994. NAFTA knocked lots of Mexicans out of work and hit small farmers hard. And a surge of people came to the United States. The number of undocumented people here more than tripled from 3.5 million in 1990 to over 11 million in 2010. And large numbers were arriving in the southeast U.S. for the first time. Carlos guessed that maybe 3,000 came to Albertville from his hometown in Guanajuato. Lots of people told us they liked how small Albertville was, that it wasn't a big city, it was pretty, it felt safe. It reminded them of home. So when American workers in the Albertville plants looked around and wondered why in the world all these newcomers were suddenly showing up in the little town, this was the thing they didn't realize, that a historic migration was underway, mostly from Mexico. The newcomers ended up in poultry plants all across the South, Arkansas, Mississippi, Georgia, the Carolinas. Because coincidentally, the poultry business was going through its own massive changes. It was desperate for employees. The poultry business was booming in the early 90s like it never had before. The industry had figured out how to make chickens grow to full size more cheaply in a much shorter period of time. And they were rebranding chicken from the special meal that you'd have once a week to total ubiquity, a healthy, convenient alternative to red meat. This ragu commercial haunts the dreams of a generation of TV watchers. There's also the less healthy fast food version of chicken. Tyson started production of the McNugget from McDonald's. And soon chicken was everywhere. That's little Richard for Taco Bell. Homer Simpson advertised Church's Chicken. Chicken. Must eat. Need money. Any means necessary. The price dropped dramatically. People went from eating about 28 pounds of chicken a year in 1960 to almost 90 pounds per person per year today. Albertville's plants added lines that took whole chickens and cut them up into the options you now see in the grocery store. Wings, tenders, boneless and skinless thighs and breasts. Their international market exploded, shipping dark meats, organs and feet to Russia and China. And that's the engine that was pulling in all these new workers to Albertville. The plant that's now Tyson Foods nearly quadrupled from 250 workers to more than 900. Wayne Farms added around another 200 jobs. If there hadn't been a flood of new foreign workers to take those jobs, the companies might have had to pay more to attract employees to the plant. But that was not a choice they ever had to make. For the people who came with no papers... All the stuff that seemed so underhanded and devious to their American coworkers was surprisingly easy to pull off. This guy, Oscar, arrived in Albertville from Guanajuato in 1995, right before he turned 16, to join his father in the chicken plants. Legal age to work in a plant was 18, but that wasn't an obstacle. He gave me a, a car, like ID. Did he find you like a fake ID or what did yeah, you? He found me a fake ID with my. That's not even, I think I had not even in my face. It wasn't even your face? No. That was all older than me. And did you think, this is not going to work? Yeah, because, I mean, that was um, 16, and when I see the pictures, like, oh, my God. <laughs> the guy on the ID was probably 25, 26. His name was Jose Lopez. And from then on, that's the name that Oscar went by. They call me Joe. Do you kind of think of yourself as Joe? <sighs> yeah. <laughs> Imagine working for 20 years, I think, 19, 20 years with that name. So it's like, 
I guess that's my nickname for forever, I guess. <laughs> Joe? <laughs> yeah. It's like a stage name, like an actor, you know, but for the chicken plant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. How much did your American coworkers ask you about your legal status? Bunch. <laughs> so what would they, how would they ask it? What would they say? What's your real name? <laughs> what would you say? Say like, Jose. They say, no, that's not. I heard somebody call you another name. I, I tell him that was my nickname. Could you tell, like, did that make them mad? Or what did they think about that? They say that, you know, that Mexicans go back to Mexico. Is there any part of that that you're like, oh, that's, it's understandable? Well, really, no. You know, it's just, it's hard. When you don't have no more choice, I mean, you have to. It was really striking talking to them, how the arrival of these Latino workers blew the minds of the local workers, turned their world upside down. But the Mexican workers didn't have any of that. They didn't have a lot of emotions about their white coworkers, didn't spend a lot of time thinking or worrying about them. If the white workers didn't like them, whatever, they'd been through worse. Again, here's Fernando, the guy who called Pat, Patricia. You notice that people are staring at you because you're something strange, and they're thinking, like, where do these people come from? And uh, they would just kind of, like, glance at you to the side like they don't want you there. How frustrating is that? Uh, you, you don't really feel bad because you get used to it. This guy named Claudio said he started trying to learn English because he sensed his American co-workers were talking about him. And I would think, well, what are they saying? So I'd come back home and I would ask my daughter. So it was uh, what they were saying were um, swear words in English. He says his daughter was in elementary school. Quick warning, the story has a curse word we've been beeped here on the podcast. Anyway... One day, one of his American co-workers got mad at the way he was hanging live birds on the conveyor belt. He was saying that I was skipping a hanger, and then he would say to me, like, Hey, motherfucker, why are, why are you skipping this? You know, uh, Why do Mexicans come here if they're not going to work? So then you come home and you ask your daughter, what is motherfucker? Right. She would write down for me, like, how it's spelled and then how it's said, and I would have it on a piece of paper that I would carry with me. She'd say, hey, Dad, you know, like, just use the same word with them. Again, here's Fernando. A lot of times, you know, they, they talk about you and they, they, they'd use that word that they have, wetbackers to describe you. One time, I got mad and hit somebody in the face with a chicken uh, like this. He didn't do anything. He just kind of walked off. And this was the guy who ran that line. <laughs> you hit him with a chicken. Did that feel good to do that? Well, you don't exactly feel good, but you feel a little bit calmer because that gets the person to shut up. He says he could get away with talking back because he had papers. There's no official estimate of how much of Albertville's Latino population was undocumented back then or is undocumented now. But people who know the community best, who work as advocates and deal with tons of families, say it's more than half undocumented. And maybe a lot more than half. The first waves were from Mexico and then later people from Guatemala and elsewhere. 
Lots of local workers said it wasn't long before management seemed to prefer the new Latino workers, thought they were better workers. They picked up double shifts, didn't want to call attention to themselves or cause any problems, didn't want to do anything that could make them lose their jobs, didn't complain, didn't make a big deal about injuries. This was true even for the documented workers. The government calls meat and poultry processing one of the most hazardous industries in the country. People get cut from working with sharp knives and scissors. They develop carpal tunnel syndrome from all the repetitive motion on the line. Carlos said that when he and his wife would get swollen hands from working on the line, he pressed on his fingers and blood and yellow pus would come out. Chicken bones would get stuck under his fingernails, but he would just keep working. I had to like take out the guts with my two hands, and I I really wanted to leave, but I said no. I have to I I, I have to um, do this work, um, this this hard work. Esfuerzos para hacer el trabajo. So when I talk to American workers, they say I get mad when they say Mexicans work harder than white people, and um, they're like it's not it's not true. It's just that they don't speak up for their rights. And I was wondering what you think about that. Yeah, like, we, we don't really yeah, know our rights, so we, we don't really know how to defend our, our rights uh, in the in the workplace. So, yeah, that's that's kind of a reason, but it's also because we have these, like, families that are suffering that depends on us. I mean, they have us working from the time that we were kids, eight years old. Here, that doesn't really exist, so, you know, we do work harder. Carlos agrees with the local workers that the companies prefer Latinos. He'd see it play out at his plant. With my boss, like, I'll be talking to him and, um, like, five uh, workers will come along um, and two of them will be Hispanic. And my boss will say to me, hey, give me those two because they're going to have better work ethic. Whereas the other people might not last as long, they might leave, but the plant loses money when that happens. And so my, like, my boss will say, those two, those two are going to last. And we felt bad when the supervisors turned on us. This worker asked that we don't use his name. I, I think they felt like that the Hispanics was more, you know, over above us. And I didn't see no difference. I mean, I thought, well, I can do just as much as this guy can, you know. But they didn't see that in us. They saw it in them. And uh, and after that, so like it just changed. They Like they just, like a turned on us and forgot about us. We, we felt forgotten. We just felt like our jobs was in jeopardy. And from the time I clock in until the time I clock out, I was worried about where, where what's going to happen to my future here at the chicken plant. He was one of a handful of black workers at his plant. When Latino workers came in, he says it was the first time he felt unified with his white co-workers. Both saw themselves as the American workers. Again, here's Pat. It made, it, it made us all think that we were just going to be pushed out the door and they were going to bring all Hispanics in to replace us. Especially us older hands. You have a, a fear all of a sudden just slapping. Coming up, the government steps in on the side of the local workers. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. This is American Life from Ira Glass. Today on our program, what actually happens when immigrants arrive in large numbers? We're telling the story of Albertville, Alabama, which went from being a nearly all-white southern town 
to a town that's now lots of immigrants, more than half of them undocumented, best as we can tell. My co-host for the hour is Miki Meek. And at this point in our story, the longtime workers in the chicken plants have this feeling that there's right and there's wrong and people are breaking the law, obviously here illegally. And everybody's acting like this is just fine and normal and what the hell. And the companies seem to be not just fine with this, but probably encouraging it. And in some plants, evidence came in 1995 of just how much the companies knew and how far they'd go to keep undocumented workers in the plants. That year, the government decided to take aggressive action against the wave of undocumented Mexican workers that were moving into poultry plants, carpet factories, and hotel jobs all across the South. They launched a series of raids called Operation Southpaw. Paul was short for Protecting American Workers. In Washington today, the Immigration Service has announced a very bold move to locate and deport illegal aliens. Federal agents have actually gone into factories and farm fields to locate illegal immigrants, and then they've gone... The goal is to create job openings for American workers by arresting lots of people at work sites. A big show of force with over 100 INS and Border Patrol agents. They rode into Alberville with empty buses to haul people off to deportation. At the Gold Kiss plant outside of town, workers cheered when they arrived. But at Hudson Foods, management had worked out a system to deal with the raids. I talked to Mark Ginzo. He worked at Hudson Foods as a bilingual chaplain. This is something you see at some chicken plants around the South, chaplains to minister to the workers. Mark remembers they were raided a few times, and they'd know in advance if immigration was coming because agents had to get a warrant first. Usually, usually, there was somebody outside who would, uh, or they would look through the windows and see them coming in and, and start screaming, you know, La Migra, La Migra. And La Migra means? Immigration. Then what happens in the plant? What do you see happen? Oh, you see people running all over the place. Uh, you know, the Mexicans, of course. And But they knew. They knew where to go. They knew all the hiding places in the plant. And where are those places in the plant? There was a, one particular room that, oh my God, I, I felt so bad because... It was very cold. It was like freezing in there. Was it the freezer? <laughs> yeah. And they would put, you know, 15 or 20 of them in there <laughs> and lock the door. What is it that you're laughing about? What's making you laugh? Well, uh, uh, it, it was funny because management uh, was the one that cooperated to hide them. <laughs> management would help hide them? Yeah. How? Yeah. Like they would show people or? Yeah, they show people where the room and some, you know, some will even hide in some of the management offices and under the desks and closets, <laughs> anywhere we could wow. we could hide them. Uh, they usually had four or five in my, inside my office. <laughs> this company, Hudson Foods, doesn't exist anymore. It was bought out so we couldn't ask them to comment. But the INS agent who led the raid in Albertville, Bart Zafnicki, told me it was common for companies in all sorts of industries to hide workers. Sometimes it got ridiculous. He remembers a manager insisting he didn't have any undocumented workers. And then a guy fell through the ceiling and landed on his desk. Bart pointed out there's never been a serious crackdown on employers. These raids were short-lived, the fines were low, the chances of getting caught were small. Bart found it frustrating Congress never had the political will to go after the companies that hire undocumented workers. There are congressmen who talk tough on immigration. But when INS went after work sites in their districts, they told them to back off. Politically, it's always been easier to scapegoat the people who cross the border than to go after employers. 
Martha and Pat's plant never got raided for whatever reason. But Martha told me some of their American co-workers took things into their own hands. I was on second shift, and we were sitting there one night, and they said, immigration is here. And that bright room cleared out. And that's... So was immigration there or not really there? No, that wasn't there. So were they just messing with them to be mean? Yeah, it was just rumors. And you know who I'm talking about. Wayne Gable. Wayne Gable, a maintenance worker, now retired. He wasn't shy talking about this. Somebody started a rumor out in the plant. Now, was that you? Most likely. (laughs) It was you? It was me. Why did you do that? To see what would happen. It's kind of mean, right? No, it was funny. The Hispanic people move fast when they have to. (laughs) Especially when they think immigration's got to... They was running on top of the building. They was running out the gate of the back of the plant. And the time they finally got everybody settled down and told them it wasn't happening and all that, we done lost 20 people that run, yeah, because I was scared they was going to get caught. Did they come back? No, 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 they didn't come back because I was afraid that, you know. So they didn't come back the next day? No. Like 20 people were gone, just gone. Right. And it's all because somebody told a lie. But we did get the three or four that was hiding on top of the roof. They did come back down. They let them go back on the line. Did you feel bad about it at all later? No, because the company kept saying they was there legally, and I knew better. I knew the company was lying, so I wanted to find out. And uh, did you get in trouble? Well, they carried me to the office, and we had a little conversation. They threatened me, told me not to do that no more, that they would fire me. And I told them, I says, yeah, and I have immigration in here, and I have a lawsuit on you when you do for me telling the truth because y'all lying anyway. And that proved my point. And that proved the point to everybody in that plant. They were all there illegally. HR people who worked around Albertville at Tyson Foods, Wayne Farms, and Goldkist back in the mid-90s told us that, sure, they suspected people were working under false papers. But they say, what could they do? Once an applicant presented documents proving they could work, the law limited them from probing and digging beyond that. Bruce Williams worked in HR at Wayne Farms back in the 90s. And the law will tell you you can go no further. You can't, you know, just, you know, set them in the chair and put the bright light on them. You know, where did you get these papers? You know, where were you born? What courthouse was it? You know, you can't do that stuff unless you do it to every single individual you hire. This is true. It goes back to President Reagan's 1986 amnesty law. That's the first time it became a crime in this country to knowingly hire somebody who should not be here. The key word in the law is knowingly. If a company knowingly hired somebody they shouldn't, that's when they got in trouble. But the law also said that if somebody's documents look legitimate, if they, quote, appear to be genuine on their face, the employer must accept them and cannot question them or ask for more documentation. These are the rules that we still live under today. And when the law was first passed, HR departments and companies all over the country were unprepared. They had no idea how to evaluate all the different forms of ID people were presenting. Birth certificates and school records and Native American tribal documents, and foreign passports with special work authorization stamps. They couldn't tell whether they seemed genuine on their face. So in 1995, Congress, in a very practical, bipartisan way that we almost never see anymore, decided that it had to fix the problem and come up with a simple way for employers to tell who is legal to work in the United States and who isn't, to figure out who they could hire. There is simply no time to lose. 
Senator Dianne Feinstein warned at the time, they had to solve this crisis now of immigrants coming in illegally and getting these jobs. I fear an even more serious backlash nationwide against all immigrants, including those who want to come to our country legally. Obviously, they didn't solve it. And here we are today. A bipartisan commission called the Jordan Commission considered a bunch of solutions. One of the things they ended up proposing was a national computerized system to check people's IDs and make sure they were valid and their social security numbers are real. This is the system we've come to know as E-Verify. The commission wanted it to be mandatory everywhere, but an almost laughably wide-ranging coalition rose up against it. This is the ACLU plus the NRA plus church groups plus business interests plus La Raza. They all saw it as big brother government intrusion. So a voluntary program moved forward. A few of the poultry plants in Albertville voluntarily signed up for the pilot program of E-Verify in the late 90s. Tom Hallett, Wayne Farms, says they were the first. Because frankly, I didn't. I, I wanted to make sure I knew what I was doing, and I had no, I had no way of knowing if somebody handed me a document, especially, especially an alien card, whether or not it was legitimate or not. So, I'll be honest with you, I didn't have a clue what I was looking for, and I was looking for any tool I could find. So, how much better was E-Verify then? Like, what's this, what's the difference that E-Verify made? <laughs> to me, the big fallacy of it. It would tell you that a document was valid, but it wouldn't tell you that the bearer of that document was actually the person that that document was for, if that makes any sense. What you're talking about is people using, using somebody else's papers. That's right. I mean, that was the fallacy of it. But it was the only thing available at the time, and we used it religiously. I mean, I have talked to workers who did used to work here who were upfront about the fact. They were like, yeah, I came here and I used a fake ID and I worked here. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that hadn't happened. But I can tell you that if we ever caught them, they weren't working here. Workers confirmed this. Inviting your boss to your quinceanera was not a good idea. But like Tom said, E-Verify couldn't detect when someone presented valid papers that actually had been issued to someone else. And so lots of people slipped through. A study commissioned by the government in 2009 found that over half of undocumented workers with fake papers, people E-Verify should have caught, got a clean bill of health. What this means is that E-Verify worked out in a very convenient way for employers. They could simultaneously keep a huge illegal workforce while saying they were doing everything possible to root out that workforce. Pat says if she learned about someone who had a fake ID, sometimes she went to her supervisor and was told, Everything on their paperwork checks out okay. What can we do? Her ID showed up good. Her ID showed up good. So by the early 2000s, you have all these undocumented workers not getting caught by E-Verify, working in the Albertville plants, which raises the central question you come to when we talk about immigration. Did Americans end up out of work because of it? As Jeff Sessions puts it, You let a bunch of uh, people come in from out of the country to take what few jobs there are, leaving Americans unemployed. Or as Martha says, and by the way, she's a Democrat, voted for Clinton. You know, you need to hire Americans, you know. There are people out there that want jobs, but they, there for many years, they just quit hiring Americans. So did these immigrants result in Americans out of work? To answer that, we turn to a labor economist who's made this kind of question his life's work. Giovanni Perry of the University of California, Davis. 
Hi, Ira. Hi, Miki. Nice to talk to you today. Perry did a study for us comparing the area around Albertville and counties in Alabama that had similar job markets but did not get a lot of immigrants. And he looked at the Americans most likely to lose their jobs to those immigrants, the ones competing against them for those poultry jobs. These are people who did not finish high school. Where are more of them out of a job? Was their unemployment rate higher around Albertville? No, so we don't find uh, here a significant difference in the unemployment rate between Albertville and the comparison counties. So even though a flood of immigrants came in, native-born workers were still finding jobs in equal numbers. Yes, because the economy was becoming bigger and these uh, immigrants coming in, uh, in part, were consumer, and so they created demand also for other jobs. In other words, so many people moved to Albertville. Remember, it's over 6,000 people who moved in. And they had to rent places to live and buy groceries and gas and other stuff in this little town. And the labor fueled the expansion of the poultry plants and all the businesses associated with poultry. So even if fewer American workers were in the plants themselves, it created tons of work around town. And the numbers show the Americans found work elsewhere. What's interesting is that all of that was invisible to the local workers in the plants. Like, they didn't see the economy of the whole town. They didn't see the jobs being created everywhere. They saw what was right in front of them, in the plant, which was immigrants getting hired there. They weren't wrong about that. By the early 2000s, just 10 years after Latino workers first arrived in the plants, they dominated the workforce there. Whites were in the minority. Again, here's Martha. Well, you know, you go out there and you get on the line and you're the only white person and you got 25 Hispanics, and right across from you on that line, there's all Hispanics. You're standing right there, you know, by yourself. What was it like to suddenly be the minority in the plant? Well, it wasn't that bad when they started, but after they'd been there a while, they kind of thought they owned it. There was more of them. You know, they kind of stayed with their group, the family, you know, like aunts and cousins and just about all of them's kin somehow, you know. They started changing their attitude. Like what would come up? It was hard to work with them because they were speaking their language and talk about people and make fun of them. And Americans know they was talking or laughing at them, you know, and it started causing problems. We had quite a few fights in the break rooms. Then we had them carried out to the parking lot, you know. Martha believes it's no accident that the workforce flipped like this. She believes the companies had a strong incentive to hire Latino workers rather than the locals. And the incentive was a big one. They didn't join the union. Most of them, anyway. The two big Albertville plants, Tyson Foods and Wayne Farms, are union shops, which is unusual for poultry and unusual in Alabama, which is a right-to-work state. Which means workers can opt out of the union and not pay dues. Pat's a lifelong union member, Martha's chief steward at her plant. For years, the union had fought for better conditions and higher pay. And Pat and Martha's biggest frustration with their Latino co-workers is that they couldn't convince them to join. They don't understand it. All they say is that $9.10 coming out of their check every week for union dues. And they don't want to pay it. Because they don't want to spend that money, they got to send it home. The union could do awesome in a poultry plant if the Hispanics would unite and help us. I mean, we could rule the roost, you might say. Latino workers we talked to confirmed this. They didn't want to pay the extra money. They get the same salary and benefits, regardless of whether they paid dues and joined the union. So why bother? 
The union president during the 90s, Joe Ellis, agrees with Martha that the companies were deliberately hiring Latino workers as a strategy to weaken the union. Oh, no, there is no doubt. I mean, I could tell you that there's no doubt. There's no doubt. I mean, that the results show that. I mean, there is no doubt about it. I mean, uh, we had membership at those plants at that time, probably 80 to 90 or even 95 percent. Mm-hmm. And then when the Latinos come in, that changed. And when that changed, then the bargaining unit changed because we didn't have any bargaining power. So you were at their mercy. The union sent us records for 1991 that show membership at one of the plants, Wayne Farms, at 94.5%. Wayne Farms disputes this number, says membership has never been that high. Today, the union says they're in the mid-40s at both union plants in town. The unions lost their 30-minute paid breaks. Raises are minimal. The companies, Wayne Farms and Tyson Foods, were adamant that they were not hiring Latino workers as a strategy to weaken the union. They said they didn't do anything to specially recruit Latino workers. By the way, as long as we're on the subject, they said they did not put up a sign or signs on the border with Mexico. They said what happened was simple. The population of people applying for jobs changed. And they hired whoever applied and was qualified. Remember, these are plants with incredibly high turnover, always scrambling to hire people. And during the 90s, they got all their workers through the state employment office. It was the state employment office sending over the people to fill the jobs. And Latino applicants are who they sent. Bruce Williams was in HR during the 90s and 2000s at Wayne Farms. Okay, if your application flow, the number of applications you get in, say it's 60 70% Hispanic, over a period of time, what does that tell you your workforce is going to look like? It's just, it's just plain arithmetic, you know, because I had, I, I remember telling a couple of people, all right, I needed 10 people. I got 50 applications this week. They were all Hispanic. Now, who am I supposed to hire? Well, go out and find some white people. Why do you go find people? You got people coming to you. Even if the Albertville plants never actively sought out or recruited Latino workers, it's important to note that it's been documented that poultry companies elsewhere did by sending scouts to Texas and Florida and running ads in Spanish-language newspapers and radio stations. Tyson Foods was indicted in 2001 by federal prosecutors for recruiting workers from outside the United States, from Mexico and Central America, and helping them get fake documents. The government lost that case when it failed to prove that this was a company-sanctioned practice, not just some rogue employees at a few of the plants. To be clear, the fact that so few local workers are in the plants today, Pat and Martha don't entirely blame the companies for that. Today, Pat no longer believes there was a sign on the border. They say it was a mixture of things. Their peers started to retire out, and their kids don't work at the plant. More kids in town are graduating high school and have other options for work. And they said some locals just didn't want to come to work at a place that's mostly Latino. But at the same time, they're convinced that there were periods where the companies did preferentially hire Latino workers. Stretches where it really felt like locals couldn't get a job. They'd hear about locals putting in applications, but taking a long time to get hired, or not getting hired at all. And meanwhile, lots of Latino workers were coming through. In fact is it really was harder for local workers to get a job than it had been in the past. 
Pat and Martha and other locals were right about that. Latino workers would line up at 2 in the morning for job applications. And by the time local workers showed up, the jobs would be taken. And the companies got pickier. Plants added a three-strikes policy, and they tried to stick to it. That if you quit three times, they weren't going to hire you again. The old mirror test days were over. You could sum up the last quarter century at the Albertville chicken plants this way. Chicken boomed, foreigners arrived, and wages didn't grow. At least for Pat and Martha, even though poultry companies made huge profits during the boom. Again, here's Pat. You got to realize, I've been there 44 years, fixed me 44 years, and I'm just now making over eleven ninety-five. You've been working there for more than 40 years, and you're at eleven ninety-five. Mm-hmm. Have your wages kept up with your cost of living? Or no. No. It's amazing. Uh, 40 years ago, I could go to the grocery store with $20 and buy groceries and feed a family of four. What about now? Now, it's, it takes $120 a week just to feed a family of three. She makes around $25,000 a year. If her wages had simply kept up with inflation, and she made the same thing as she did back when she started on August the 13th, 1973, she'd now be making $48,000 a year. Basically double. Also, back then, she says she didn't have to pay for her insurance, but now she does. And those costs go up every contract. But how much of the stagnation in her wages is because of immigrants? The economist we talked to, Giovanni Perry, pointed out to us that it's not just Pat and her co-workers in Alabama who've taken this horrible hit to their wages. Not just their wages have stagnated in this period. Uh, the wage of low-skilled workers, they have a downward trend actually since 1980. This is all across America. And not just people without a high school education. It's about half the country whose wages have stayed flat or dropped when you account for inflation. The people without a high school degree like Pat have taken the worst of it. There's been a massive transfer of income to managers and shareholders and people at the top of the economic ladder. Thanks to automation, a low minimum wage, foreign trade with places like China, the decline of unions. Nationally, the meatpacking unions have been losing power since the 60s. A few years back, a sociologist named Jackie Gabriel researched which came first in the meatpacking industry, wage stagnation or immigrants. She found that it went like this. Back in the 60s, the meat industry restructured in ways that weakened the unions. That led to pay cuts. And those pay cuts made the jobs way less attractive to American workers. And that paved the way for immigrants to come in and take those jobs. In other words, it wasn't immigrants that led to wage stagnation, but the other way around. But that still leaves a question, and that is, did the massive arrival of immigrants in the 90s and 2000s all over the country make it worse? After all, in Albertville, it was thousands of people. Did that push down Pat and Martha's wages? Well, Giovanni Perry ran the numbers for us. Again, he compared Albertville to counties in Alabama with similar job markets that did not get lots of immigrants. And he found that after 20 years of immigrants pouring into the area around Albertville, the wages of people without a high school education did have a bigger drop than the counties without all those immigrants. The wages were 7% lower, which works out to... $23 per week. $23 a week. That adds up to $1,200 per year per worker. 
So it's real money. When I showed this result to other economists, they said this was not surprising at all. This is usually what studies find. Though in most studies, the change is smaller than this. Most studies, the people across the ideological spectrum, find that when immigrants like this arrive, the effect on wages is not massive. Like, in fact, it's pretty modest. Just a few percentage points or nothing at all. But the people affected are the ones without a high school diploma. These studies show that everybody else in the economy, everyone who's graduated high school or more, either they see no change, that's what happened in Albertville, or they see a tiny improvement. The wages go up just a couple percentage points. And the one group whose wages suffer, Americans without a high school diploma, that group is not much of the country. It's been shrinking for decades. It's just 10% of adults today. This is why so many economists are always saying that immigration is good for the economy. Because overall, the economy gets a boost, and only 10% of wage earners take a hit. Which, of course, sounds great, unless you're in that 10%. Like Pat, who didn't graduate high school. We ran Perry's numbers by her. His finding that her wages dropped $23 a week, more than places in Alabama that didn't get all those immigrants. Giovanni Perry cautioned us that $23 a week is the very most the immigrants might have knocked down Pat's wages. There's a big margin of error in this study, so the number might be a lot less, which I told her. Worst case scenario, if, if all that were immigrants, if they cost you $23 a week and they cost you $1,200 a year, like, what do you think about that? Mm. Well, it kind of tisses me off a little bit that uh, they costed me that, but wouldn't it have costed them the same thing? Uh, what, you're saying, you're, what you're saying is like if my wages went down, then didn't their wages go down too? Go down too. But now, you cannot fault them. You can't blame. You cannot fault a person for wanting a job to feed their family. I don't care who you are. After all these years, it's hard not to notice that there's a symmetry in the lives of the old-time workers like Pat and the immigrants who arrived to work alongside them. Both groups never finished high school. Both groups used the chicken plants as the way to pull their families out of working in the fields. Both are incredibly proud that this is what let them buy a house, cars, send their kids to school, make sure they finish, and didn't end up at the plants like them. And they've both seen their real wages drop over the last 20 years. Carlos has been in the U.S. since the late 70s and sounds very similar to Pat when he talks about this. El problema es que yo tengo años the problem is, is that over the years, we've been getting raises of 25, 30 cents, even 50 cents. But at the same time, insurance goes up, taxes go up at the federal, local, and state level. And so when you take all of that out, the check stays the same. I'm paying more for food, more for the mechanic, and that's what makes my check go down. What we really need is an increase in our wages of one or two dollars. And this brings us back to Jeff Sessions, senator and attorney general. It was the reason that we went to Albertville in the first place. When Sessions explains what he's trying to achieve by limiting immigration... He always talks about working people. He barely sounds like a Republican. He says our system's too biased towards corporations and capital formation 
the people at the top. And, and where is it hurting the most? It's the lower-income people. I mean, wages are down from 2000. They're down from 2007. People are hurting, and we need to focus more on the well-being of people who make uh, lower wages, 50000 and below. Thing is, even if Sessions had managed to block immigrants from ever coming to Albertville in the first place, or if the administration that he serves figures out how to do that now, the main things in America driving down wages weren't immigrants at all. go into town to see what 6,000 newcomers cost taxpayers and what it was like to have all these immigrants who'd never driven cars before suddenly on the roads, not understanding what a stop sign is, and why a Latino business owner told his friend to run for mayor on the platform of kicking out all the immigrants. Our program today was reported and produced by Nikki Meek, with additional reporting from Lily Sullivan and Diane Wu and me. Our interpreter was Gabriela Munoz, fact-checking by Christopher Sotala and Michelle Harris, original music by Marcus Thorne Begala. People who put our show together today include Susan Burton, Zoe Chase, Neil Drummond, Connor Joffe, Walt, David Kestenbaum, Jonathan Nenhevar, B.A. Parker, Brian Reed, Robin Semien, Lyra Smith, Julie Snyder, and Matt Tierney. Special thanks to Rick Major, Justin Wilcher, Greg Stallings, David Griffith, Jeanette Masters, Larry Cooper, Gordon Hansen, Lord Escovea, Mary Helen Montgomery, Virginia Laura, Donald Stull, Katherine Schwartzman, and Angela Stesey, who wrote the book Scratching Out a Living. Our website, where this week you can nerd out on Giovanni Perry's research on Albertville with charts thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tori Malatia. You know, for some reason, he has always referred to his employees as chickens and described his own job as... I have drought chickens, hung chickens, dumped chickens, pushed dead chickens. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories about Alberville and This American Life. <laughs>